0: Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. That is, even though a lesser known hymn has been one of my absolute favorite hymns uh, since I was a child. And uh, the last stanza has, for me, been one of my absolute favorites. I've thought about it over the years uh, countless, countless times. And I just think it, for whatever reason, even as a child, this idea captured me. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made. where every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Around 1000 AD, a Jewish scribe wrote a poem It's the Akdamut, and if you have a Jewish background, you're familiar with it because it's still used in the Jewish liturgies today. And this last stanza, that is a poem that is part of the Akdamut. But it wasn't the first time in history those words were used. That was a thousand years ago, but before that... Similar words showed up in the Quran. And it was talking about the incredible, awesome power and wisdom of God. But that wasn't the first time the words showed up. They actually showed up around 2,000 years ago, around the time of Christ. And in that moment, it was a Jewish disciple talking about one of the most famous of the rabbis, Rabbi Hillel. So, you have three world religions Judaism, Islam, and Christianity who are all using similar language to describe God. And I just, I found that uh, really fascinating, but realized it isn't how the words came to us. See, it, Christi- in Christian circles, where it first showed up for us, was about a hundred years ago from a guy named Frederick Lehman. This is interesting to me because Frederick was a pastor-songwriter. He loved to write a bunch of different hymns, and he did write many of them. But he heard a poem one day, and he heard it from a traveling evangelist. And so in a dramatic moment at the end of this, this sermon, this evangelist recited this poem. And Lehman knew that he had to memorialize it in song. And so he wrote it down, and he was committed to, to filling out the rest of it. He, he knew it was going to be the end of his song, but he needed to write the rest of it, which, of course, he would eventually do. But in doing so, he wanted to find out where the poem came from. And so he tracked it down, but passed the evangelist he used, who used it for him, he found out that it had been discovered written on the wall of an asylum. The previous cell inhabitant had died. And when the workers came in to clean up and repaint the cell, the man in the asylum had scratched these words into the wall of his cell. And it it kind of got me thinking because as I'm kind of tracing this, right, it was something odd to me as I'm kind of running down this like 2,000-year-old rabbit hole. And uh, really a couple things caught my attention. One of them was just how easily I'm distracted by things nowadays and why I could spend time tracking down a 2,000-year-old rabbit. Um, And so here I am down to try to figure it out and reading different translations of this thing and what the Quran said and what was said in early Judaism, but that was one thing that caught me. The other thing that caught my attention was that in the Jewish and Muslim versions of the poem, it, it actually speaks of God's power or his wisdom. It, 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 and these are admirable and worthy things for us to extol, to, to put into song, but the, but the Christian version is about God's love. And I was thinking, I wonder when it changed. Like, who changed it? Was it Lehman? Was he, you know, writing it down one day and because of something particular going on in his life, he was like, this is the way I want this to read? Or, or was it the evangelist who, in, you know, at the end of his message and, and telling this, using this great poem, he, he changed it? Or, in my version of history, maybe it was the man in the asylum who, facing some of his darkest and most dreadful days, he took great comfort in the love of God, more so than in any other attribute. Of course, we're not going to know on this side of heaven, but the hymn itself now is called the love of God. And there is something about the promise of God's indescribable love that is being made available to me and to you and, and to everyone. There is something just incredibly powerful about this that stirs up the human heart to think about, to meditate on this great love of God. And so here we are, we're in this series called Then Sings My Soul, and we've been looking at these ancient songs, hundreds of years old or sometimes thousand-year-old songs, and now in this case a 2,000-year-old poem that that is still used to this day. And, and what is it about some of these ancient songs? What, what great biblical truth and reality do they tap into that have caused them to be so meaningful for so many people for so long. And that's what we're looking at today with the love of God. And so I'm actually reflecting on this hymn over the last couple of weeks. And a simple Bible verse keeps coming to mind. It just kind of keeps, you know, kind of like pressing in. And it's actually the most famous of all Bible verses. And if, if I was wearing a rainbow wig... And holding a sign, you might be able to guess what, what, the, what the verse is. What's the, what would you guess is the most famous of all Bible verses? John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In my head, it still says whosoever. I'm sure some of you have your own version that you memorize it with a few different tweaks in the language. But, you know, I thought, I can't talk about John 3.16, right? I mean, it's like, I'm a pastor, and I I don't like to repeat myself. And obviously, I've talked about John 3.16. I've probably preached on it over the years. Like, you know, I've been preaching, you know, been teaching the Bible for 30-plus years now. Like, come on, there's got to be. And so, I, I said I don't want to repeat myself. So, I went into my my Google Docs, and I searched for John 3.16, and I nothing came up, and I figured I just wrote it a little different, so I went to our document that we use to talk, that, that keeps track of all the different topics and the verses we use, and I I couldn't find it there either, which which means I probably have never actually done a full teaching on John 3.16, which was somewhat disturbing and it seems like a bit of a colossal oversight and it should question whether or not I should remain having a pastor card in my pocket. Um, And so if you want to take the clergy thing out of my front windshield, then you can certainly do that uh, because this seems really odd to me that we haven't talked about this verse. And it's so famous that like everybody talks about it. Businesses use it, right? So in and out Burger wrote it on the bottom of one of their cups for many, many, many years. Forever 21, which is really funny because I didn't realize that there would be any sort of Christian thing about Forever 21. Uh, and so John 3.16 shows up there. And if you're in the sports world, then you're going to be super familiar with it because of late, it would be from Tim Tebow, right? Because Tim Tebow, if you know this, there was like a whole big thing, uh, when he was still playing college ball, he would use, like, right, you see the picture, he would actually write John 3.16 and other verses on his, his I black. And, um, and there was one game in particular, it was a wildly popular game, and, and uh, he changed the verse, which in a superstitious kind of a, uh, you know, culture as sports, this was not seen as a good thing, but uh, he changed the verse and 90 million people Googled the verse that day during that game, but then it gets weird, Three years later, he's in the NFL, and he isn't allowed to write things on his iBlack anymore. And so after the game, he tells the story that he was leaving, going to the press, and uh, going to the, the kind of the after game uh, debrief with the press, and somebody says, did you hear what happened? He's like, what? And they're like, you threw for 316 yards. He's like, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. And they're like, yeah, but there's more. You, your average pass was for 31.6 yards. Average rushing was 3.16. At the time of uh, uh, Pittsburgh's holding uh, was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. And, and these went on and on to the point where like, even ESPN had some writers and said, this is getting weird. Like, It's just eerie. And some of you who were skeptics are like, come on, that's just a coincidence. And You're probably right, but it is super weird. But anyway, he made it su- really, really popular. But he wasn't the first sports figure. Some of you will remember an episode of The Simpsons that highlighted a guy sitting there in the corner holding a John 3.16 sign. That's Rainbow Man. Does anybody here remember Rainbow Man? Is there any sports fans from like the 80s or 90s who remember the rainbow, and Rodney or something like that? He was off in the back always hundreds of different sports events, different venues. He would figure out how to sit just where the cameras couldn't avoid him. And he would hold this sign with this crazy wig and he would do these dances and things like that. Uh, that was my version of what he did. And, uh, and it was he was wild. And everyone had thought, of course, just a little bit crazy. It ends up he's actually really crazy, like certifiably crazy. He's serving now multiple life sentences. And here we are back at John and you're like, what in the world is going on when you see such a diversity of people who continue to point to John 3.16 as one of the great sources of hope and inspiration for them, right? On just, you know, Tim Tebow, one of the most beautiful specimens of humanity in every way. He literally married Miss Universe, like literally, And, you know, you'd think that they would have met at some swanky Hamptons party or something. No, they met while they were raising raising money for for kids with special needs because, you know, they're those kinds of people, like beautiful inside and out. And they fall back on John 3.16 as a great source of hope and encouragement for themselves. But so does Aaron Hernandez, one of Thibaut's friends who ended up, as not just a psychologically damaged murderer in jail, but ultimately committed suicide. And in that cell, John 3.16 was there along with him as well. And you look at someone like, you know, the Rainbow Man, and you think, oh, multiple life sentences because the guy lost it. And then you realize that Billy Graham who is considered to this day, even in death, to be one of the most respected men in all of the last hundred years. He was a counselor and an advisor and the pastor to world leaders. And he taught millions of people at these great evangelistic rallies. And most often, guess what he taught? John 3.16. A patient in an asylum, the most respected scientists and scholars and teachers throughout history. Your crazy aunt, because everybody has a crazy aunt who told them about John 3.16. All of this great diversity of people who find incredible hope and comfort. So I want to take a deep dive into John 3.16, and I did. This week I decided I was going to read every single commentary that I own, every scholarly work that I have, on John three sixteen, I figured it would only be a few pages from every one of the books. I had a whole big stack of them going. Trevor walks in, and he's like, "Hey, that would make a good picture," and because here it is, all of the books, a few pages. I wanted to, you know, I thought I'm gonna. I've never done a full length coverage of it. I'm gonna just dive in and figure out, you know, into the Greek text and the history of interpretation of this vital passage. And so here are the mysteries that I uncovered. And you're gonna want to write this down. Here is what the verse means. It means. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You actually can't condense it much more than that or make it much more clear. It is the first time that the word love shows up in the Gospel of John and a lot of folks find it surprising that it's it's that he loved the world. And now for us, you might think, well, why, why would you find that odd? I mean... Everybody knows God loves the world, but that isn't actually the case. You might know it, but throughout history, that has not been the dominant understanding of God. The Jewish people knew that God was love, but mostly that he loved Israel, the chosen people. If you get into Greek thought, into Gentile thought, they knew that there were gods out there and that the gods could be appeased And that you had obligations to the gods. And you could negotiate and barter with them. But the idea that they loved you? Nah. Nah. If the gods did love you, it probably meant that one of them was trying to sleep with you to give birth to a demigod. Like that was about the closest. And it was super individualistic. It wasn't as if he loved the whole of the world. And it isn't that, you know, loving the world is difficult because there are so many of us. Right? Like he's like an Irish family that lost track of the 12th, 13th, and 14th kid. It's not like, you know, it's not like that, right? Like, that's how I kind of grew up, big Irish families that would, you could, they could lose track. That's not why, you know, it's so incredible that God loves the world. It's that he loves the world despite who's in it. That he loves us despite us. See, if you believe that God loves everyone, you get that from Jesus. That's a Jesus thing. You're aligning with his teaching. And you're going to say, no, I didn't get that from Jesus. I got that. I got that from my grandma who got it from Jesus. That's how that works. It's a part of the Jesus culture that was created by Christ's teaching, particularly John 3.16. This universal idea that we have. It isn't even universal in the world today. Not even among the world religions that God desperately loves everyone, even broken, sinful, rebellious everyone's. It is remarkable, quite frankly, that He loves the whole of the world, because we are often not very lovable. Let me pick up a newspaper. I've been reading a lot more news lately. I probably should stop for a while. I kind of go through seasons. I take a break, I read a little. It's rough. Things are crazy right now. That's the world he loves? The things that we do to each other? The way we hurt his children? That's the world he loves, yes. It tells us that God so loved, and this isn't just that God loved so much, like in quantity, but that God loved just so. It's, it, it, it's, it's designed to show us how God loves not just that, like, not just a, a quantity kind of a thing, but how he loved it. Because God's love is love in action. When the Bible speaks of his love, it speaks of him doing things. That his love actually results in something. It isn't just that God is love. But that God loves in such a way that it, it makes him do things in the world. And I, again, a thought kept popping into my head this week. I felt like maybe God was, was telling me this this week. And so if you're a note taker, that you, you might want to write down these words because I felt like I heard God saying to me, he was saying, I love you. Is not the words I want to hear from you. If you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel. More than words is all you have to do to make it real. Then you wouldn't have to say, that you love me, because I'd already know. That's, that's pretty. Ca- that's extreme, right? That is. That's pretty catchy. Someone write that down and post that on social media with my name under it, if you would. It's more than words, and I. I it's actually really. I love this idea, whole idea because because we talk about loving and and what that means, but like for the scriptures, you don't have love without action. God's love is His action. It's what He actually does. And so what is it that this God did? Well, we see that here as well. He gave his one and only Son. He gave his unique Son. And now this is a kind of a tricky thing because when we when we talk about God the Father and the Son, we're using human language. The, the writers of the scriptures use human language to kind of approximate this understanding as best you could using human language to describe really indescribable kinds of things and so we can only get Approximations. We can only brush up against these biblical truths because the the Christian theology of God is that He is a triune God, that He's a Trinity, that he, there is a Godhead, and inside the Godhead is Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not as if there was like Dad God and and Mom God, and they got together and had like Jesus God. Like it, it, that, that's not how this whole thing went. That the triune God that has always existed in this this Trinity in this. Father, Son, and Spirit in this relationship that we can only kind of brush up against when we talk about family and, and what, a, what, a, a, what a marriage would look like and what kids in, it would look like and how we feel about our children and what kind of this sort of cosmic divine dance of love. And so we use this language to help us understand how it is that God actually is, how he exists. And so what we really see in this is that when he says he gave his unique son, it means that God in some unique and inexplicable way gave of himself. He sacrificed of himself in some difficult to understand, but deeply, deeply meaningful way for us. I came across a story some years ago of a man named Milton Lee Olive III. He uh, was a soldier. He served in Vietnam and received the Medal of Honor, our highest honor that we, can, that we can bestow upon a soldier. And Milton was a genuine hero. What is it that got him a park named after himself and a memorial set up in his honor and schools named after him? What is it that uh, Milton did? Well, his, his crew him and his four or five other soldiers. They had just been in a fierce battle and they were following a path through the jungle and the enemy threw a grenade in the midst of the crew and everybody froze, everybody but Milton. Milton, without a moment's hesitation, reached out his hand and he grabbed the grenade and then he pulled it into his body and wrapped his body around the grenade and he received the full blast of the grenade. All of his fellow soldiers lived that day except him. We honor that. We recognize that somebody who is willing to lay down their life, I mean, not jump behind a tree, not run and try to survive it, not hope somebody else gets to, you know, be the hero today, but without a hesitation to give his own life. And we get into the scriptures and we think, why is it that God would jump on a grenade for us? Why? It doesn't make any sense to endure any sort of anguish or pain sacrificing his son for a people like us. So often as this screwed up and rebellious world for his enemies and in great... See, this is why Christians sing of an ocean of ink drained dry in the telling of God's love. You know, sing of his wisdom and sing of his power and and those are great and we ought to and we do. But what stirs the heart is knowing how desperately he loved us. Love in action, giving us what we actually need. When you see a memorial like this and you recognize that we honor the sacrifice of a person who would do that. We read about Milton here and we go, yes, this is exactly the kind of a thing that we want to extol. And yet, here we have a story of God who did this exact thing so that we would not perish but have eternal life. And not just for his fellow soldiers, but for those who were willing to put Jesus on a cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. For the disciples who turned their backs on him. For generations of people who will shake their fist in rebellion and deny him just so that we would not perish. So the Bible talks about this idea that there's these two paths. There's the path of perishing and there is the path of life. And over and over the scriptures talk in this sort of dualistic way. You know, humanity, we just aspire to greatness and goodness, right? And, and often in history, we sort of think we're like on the, the cusp of it. We're about to attain it. That happened actually early, around the time the hymn was written. In uh, around the 1900s, early 1900s, humanity kind of, there was a portion of the, the world that felt like we were we were getting past all of this religious stuff and where this is the age of enlightenment and science and education, and education was going to be the thing. And once we're all educated, then we're going to put all this stuff behind us, and then we will become an absolutely great people. And then World War One happened, and then World War II happened, and that kind of disabused us of any of these uh, these. Myths that humanity will educate ourselves out of our brokenness and our sin. Of course, we always look to some economic system, right? You you get, you know, communists saying, "Oh, if we do this, there'll be equity and people will all rise up." And if you do socialism, this is going to work. And but for us, no, it's capitalism. Once capitalism gets rooted in the world and spreads around the world, then we will see human thriving. How's that working? How's that working? Oh, no, it's democracy. Because if you have democracy, then everyone will be able to decide what is right, and we will pick what's best for all of us. Hmm. I don't see that playing out that way. See, it doesn't actually matter, and I'm not beating up one system or the other. All human efforts are a path toward perishing. And we see it. We see it time and again. The whole of the Bible pronounces a fierce judgment on a rebellious world and on the wicked worldly systems that are perishing and that continue to oppress and abuse and take advantage. And of course, those are all resourced by sinful worldly people. You may not like all this. I'm just telling you, this is what Jesus, this is how the same God that gave us, God loves the whole of the world, explained that there, is, there ought to be, there needs to be, there must be justice. And yet we continue to walk down this path to its bitter end. In fact, that's really the whole picture that's, that the scriptures point of hell. It's not that God is going to be sending people off to hell. It's more so that we are in fact picking a path of perishing a path that we just continue to walk and the further we walk down it the further we get away from God and God says at the very end if you want to keep walking down that path and you can do so I will not stop you if you insist on a life apart from me I will grant you that desire see you are an eternal creature all of us are from the moment of your conception, you were a forever soul. And if you have chosen in this life to walk away from God, he will let you do that down a path of perishing. But he will not let you do that without offering you a way out. And that's what this says, so that you will not perish but that you can have eternal life. And this kind of life, it's it's a forever life. And it isn't just forever in its its quantity. It's forever in its quality. He's talking about a type of life, a wholeness of life. It's a kind of picture of shalom that the Jewish people would speak about. It's, It's harmony between you and God. It's relationship between you and your creator. It's a kind of peace that settles deep into the soul. And it is obtainable by everyone. And that's one of the great beauties of the Christian faith. It doesn't matter if you are at the pinnacle of human thriving. And it doesn't matter if you find yourself in an asylum. Every person has an opportunity to walk this path of life because of what Jesus did. That's why he tells us that it's whoever believes in him. You know, I love this idea. For me, it was whosoever, but whoever believes in him. And that doesn't matter. It covers everyone. You wonder why hopeless and helpless people will often find their way to Jesus? That's why. Because it's whoever believes will have hope in him. The song that we were looking at hits it in a couple different ways. You know, he says it reaches the lowest hell, the wandering child. If you've ever experienced yourself, if you ever felt like you were a wandering child in this world, well, you can be reconciled by God's own child. The aching soul. You have an ache in your soul? Is there a restlessness that no matter what you achieve, no matter what you've accomplished, that no matter what boxes you have checked along the the journey of your life, that there is still an ache in your soul Maybe it's because you're aching for something that this world cannot give you. That it's a divine ache. Which means you might very well be one of these whoever's who can believe in him. And so will you do that? Will you be one of these whoever's? The Bible tells us that in the garden, before Jesus was going to go to the cross, that he was praying to the Father and that he sweat blood. And, you know, skeptics look at that and they're like, come on, that's sort of ridiculous. People sweating blood. Like you're trying to just make this guy seem more than what he really was. But it's actually its actually a medical condition. Hematidrosis is the actual name of it. And some years ago, we'd heard the story uh, one of the guys that we like to listen to is J.D. Greer, and he said that he has a friend, and his friend took his family to the pool for the day. While they were there at the pool, they had a great time. At the end of the time, they gathered up the kids, marched them back off to the car, when they realized their three-year-old wasn't with them. Every parent's absolute nightmare. They rushed back. He rushes back to the pool where he sees his son unconscious at the bottom of the pool. Terror grips the father. They get the child out of the pool, and he is resuscitated. They bring him to the hospital. He's going to make a full recovery. Family is just unbelievably grateful. Can't just kind of believe how fortunate this all played out for them. But the next day, he was being kept at the hospital for obviously for observation. The next day, the father noticed all of these blotches all over his face. He asked the doctor about it. He's like, what are all of these, like, they look like bruises. And the doctor said, well, the most likely explanation is this medical condition. Because you see, under great duress, the capillaries in the face can explode. So more than likely, when, when the child realized that he was drowning, he screamed out with such anguish, hoping that someone would come and rescue him, that his, his father would show up and save him, that, he, that the capillaries in his face burst from the trauma of his screaming. And then we find Jesus in the garden. And he's getting a, a taste of what is what he is going to face on the cross. And he asks the Father, he's like, is there any other way? Can we can we can we not do this? Can we can can you let this whole cup of wrath and judgment on sin pass? And is there another way besides the cross? And he cries out to his father with such anguish that he sweats blood. This is is the same Jesus who the scriptures tell us. He he keeps the stars in place. He he, he walked across the water. He rebuked the storms. He he, he, He went toe to toe with demons and Satan. He had the courage to stand before crowds who hated him. This was one powerful man and cries out with an agony and a horror at the thought of abandonment of God. Jesus walked the path of perishing so that we would not have to. So that we could be offered the path of life. If you took some of the elements when you came in. When Jesus was going to the garden. He was celebrating the Passover with his followers. The Passover was the Jewish ceremony celebration. Where they recognized that Israel was saved by God by sacrificing a sheep on their behalf. They would take a lamb and they would take the blood of the lamb and they would would put the blood over the doorposts of their house and it was a symbol. It It was the recognition that God had exchanged an innocent lamb for them and their family so that they would not perish. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, This Passover meal was never about a lamb. It was always about me. And he said, after a blessing, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who gives us the true bread from heaven, the broken body of Christ, for you. Let's take the bread together. And then we're told that after the supper, he took a cup, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, creator of the fruit of the vine. And Jesus said this was the cup of the new covenant. There was a new deal being cut. The Jewish people believed that life was in the blood. That's what the scriptures told them. The life is in the blood. And so Jesus pours out his life. He perishes and he takes the path all the way to the abandonment of the Father. He prays on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did it for us. Let's take and drink. In that moment, Jesus had a small taste of hell for us. The outpouring of the wrath of God that we deserve the abandonment of the Father for us. So will you be one of the whosoevers? What's holding you back from accepting this kind of love? Some of you here, you've already done this. You've accepted Christ as your Savior. You have read this kind of a verse or you have followed it ever since you were a child and you say, I am the one who believes in him. I'm the one who trusts in him. And you have family and you have friends who don't yet know of this love of God. What kind of an overflow would this create in us if we would meditate, if we would ruminate, if we would marinate in this great truth. The love of God for each and every person. So that we might experience the forever kind of life with our Father. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.